Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. The conquest of the promised land is over. We've reached the point in the book of Joshua where all of the battles have been won, and this great conquest has been achieved, and we're standing at that point that we talked about last time that's like the, the, the river, and everything changes on the other side of the river. The geography of the book, the kind of story that this is, changes. Where the first half of the book of Joshua is about conquest, Everything that follows after it, in one way or another, is about inheritance. It's about dividing up the land that has now been possessed by the people. But whenever you've gone through something traumatic, whenever you've gone through something difficult, it's nice to pause and reflect on what you've gone through, to think about what it all means. And that's what we're going to do in our text this morning, to look at the conquest that we've just been working through since the beginning of the year, look at that conquest and reflect on the meaning of it all and some of the lessons that it has to teach. There are three big lessons that we see at the end of the conquest narrative. Sometimes the things you fear most turn out to be the least of your problems. Sometimes the things you fear most turn out to be the least of your problems. Entering the promise takes struggle, but the struggle leads to rest. The third lesson, no matter how long you fight, there's always more left to conquer. We were in chapter 11 last week, towards the end of chapter 11, but now we're going to go just a little bit farther looking at verses 21 through the end of the chapter, verse 23, which is what you have in your order of worship. And it's interesting to note the details that are recorded in the final moments of the conquest. Like, how do you wrap this story of conquest up? told you about all of Joshua's victories. Is there anything that we've left out? And it turns out there is. There's an important victory that hasn't been mentioned before, and you would have thought this would have come up. You would have thought that this would have occurred to someone to mention. But in chapter 11, in verse 21, we read these words, Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. Well, who are the Anakim? Well, they must be some obscure little tribe. It's just some leftovers after the conquest. Seems like they weren't uh, too significant if they didn't rate a mention until now. But of course, the Anakim are, in fact, this race of giants that struck fear into the hearts of the spies that Moses sent to survey the promised land so many years ago. It was fear of those giants that led the people not to advance into the promised land, but instead to hold back. It was fear of those giants that led to 40 years in the wilderness. And maybe knowing that as you read the story of the conquest, you have at the back of your mind, oh, 
Things are going well now. Jericho is falling. Victories are being won. But just wait. Just wait until the Anakims show up. Just wait until the giants show up and start wreaking havoc on the armies of Israel. And it never happens. Right here at the end, almost as an afterthought, Joshua deals with the enemy that was the whole reason the people were afraid to advance in the first place. Last thing mentioned, just taking care of a little bit of unfinished business. If you know your Old Testament history, uh, the Anakim still have a little bit of a part to play. There's still a disgruntled giant, Goliath, who's going to be dealt with by King David. But for the most part, this problem has been dealt with, and it turns out not to have been as big a deal as everybody thought it was going to be. The fear that had led them to make arguably one of the worst decisions in the history of Israel never materialized. The great enemy that they thought they could not vanquish, they vanquish. Think about how much time is spent in the wilderness. How much of the Bible is spent chronicling the time in the wilderness? And now compare that to how much time is spent on the conflict between Israel and what was supposed to be their greatest enemies. Two verses. Two verses. Sometimes the things you fear most turn out to be the least of your problems. And that was the case for Israel. The fear that had led them to the wilderness turned out to be not something they needed to be afraid of at all. When God is with you, maybe you shouldn't let your fear draw the line. shouldn't let your fear dictate to you where you can go and where you can't go. It's interesting to see here at the end of chapter 11 another detail that's given. This actually comes a little bit earlier in the chapter, in verse 18, we read, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. As we've worked through the narrative, it may have seemed like a long time. I mean, there were some sermons that probably felt like they would never end. But, but, this narrative, it moves along from miracle to miracle, from conquest to conquest, and it kind of gives you the impression that Israel crosses the Jordan, they fight a few battles, and everything's won. But now here we're told this actually took a long time. The chronicler who's recording these things has basically selected the highlights for us, has given us the most significant events in what was actually a larger process of conquest. There were other battles, other fights that haven't been mentioned. Entering the promise takes a struggle. There are battles to fight, and it takes a while. In chapter 12, interestingly enough, we pause and we kind of end the narrative of the conquest with a roster of victories. The chapter is divided into two parts. In the first part, the first six verses, it lists all of the victories of Moses, Like, here are all of the kings that were defeated before Joshua even showed up. And then, after Moses, the second half of the chapter lists all of the victories of Joshua. Kind of a a victory lap, if you will, reminding everyone, look at all of the people that we defeated. Look at all of the kings who fell 
to the armies of Israel. It was a lot. It was a lot of effort. It was a lot of work, and it took a long time. But with the end of the conquest, it's time to rest. So we see at the end of chapter 11, this passage that's in your order of worship. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. And the land had rest. Now, so far, this has been the story of the people of Israel entering into the promise by conquest through struggle. And that's something that we can relate to because we struggle, because we fight, because life is a hard slog. Things, even when they're going well for us, never go perfectly. There's always something that we're having to deal with. There's always some obstacle standing in the path. They're not always as fearful as we think, not always as as huge as we imagine them, that there's always something. It's a struggle to enter in. But the point of entering in is not the struggle. The point of the struggle is rest. It's rest. This is what it was all about. At the end of chapter 11, those words, the land had rest from war. This is what the fighting was for. The fighting wasn't to achieve more and more impressive victories, although they did that. The fighting was to establish peace. It was to possess the land. It was to rest from war, to rest from war. And that's what it's always been about for us as well. If you read the letters at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches, at the end of each of those letters, stated differently each time, there is a recurring promise that goes something like this. To those who endure to the ends, you will receive life. Those who endure to the end, those who remain faithful, will receive the crown. That's the structure of, of the promise. Endure, persevere, and enter into the promised rest. Entering into the promise is entering into the rest. The rest is what it's all about. Entering the promise takes a struggle, but the struggle ends in rest. The beginning of chapter 13, we actually duck back in time a little bit. Because at the end of 11, we're we're given this sort of blanket summary statement. Joshua won the wars, and then he divided up the land as an inheritance. But now at the beginning of 13, we kind of go back behind that and we get a little narrative explaining what led up to that change. And it turns out it's a conversation between God and Joshua. God comes to Joshua and he speaks to him. He gives him instructions. We read in verse, uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 13, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. That's a hard thing to hear when you're old and advanced in years. You've done a lot. You've done so much. You've worked so hard. And there's so much more to do. Be encouraged. It's a little bit of a blow to a man who realizes that his fighting days are done. There remains yet much to possess. 
And then God goes to list what remains. And what remains is essentially Philistia, where the Philistines live, the coast of Phoenicia, and Lebanon. That's not insignificant, what remains to be conquered. And then God goes on to say, I myself will do it. I myself will do it. I'll take care of the problem. How does he do it? Interestingly, in history, this is a promise he keeps. Not very long after this, he raises up kings. He establishes a kingdom. He raises up King David and his son Solomon, and they bring this unconquered land into the kingdom. So what he says he will do, he does, and he does it through his king. He does it through this kingdom. And yet, even knowing that, and even seeing the catalog of Joshua's victories, we kind of have to admit as the conquest ends, that the conquest is not yet complete. God says it himself, your fighting days are done, but there's still a lot left to conquer. So this great conquest narrative, as as marvelous as it is, it turns out the conquest is left unfinished. Not all of the land is conquered when the conqueror retires from his work. And the peace that is established, the rest doesn't last. You just have to keep flipping pages in your Bible. After the book of Joshua, you get to the book of Judges. It's the chronicle of the rest of the people of Israel. It's not a good rest. Reading Judges will keep you up at night, some of the things that happen there. The peace is not maintained. Even the kingdom that that is raised up by God, that, that finishes those conquests, that kingdom falls. It crumbles. The the house of David that is raised up cannot hold on to that kingdom. Failures. These are failures. A failure to conquer everything. A failure to hold on to what was won through the struggle. And in hindsight, reading our Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, we see that these failures, they show us something. They show us something. These failures point forward. The failure to conquer all of the land points forward to the fact that all of that land would never be enough. That God's ambition ranged not just to this land, but to the world. The creation, the whole of creation would be renewed, not just this piece of it, not just this sliver of what he'd made. We also see that where Joshua cannot accomplish the task of conquest, his namesake, Jesus, is the only one who can win that victory. So even in the failure, we can reflect back and see, of course, of course, Joshua couldn't do it all. No one could do it all. No one but Jesus, who was promised. In the same way, of course, this rest was not going to be permanent. It never could be permanent because this rest was not the eternal rest that had been promised. It was just a foreshadowing of things to come, which is how the author of Hebrews uses this passage, how he reflects on the conquest of Joshua. In Hebrews 4, starting in verse 8, the author of Hebrews says, For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. 
So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So there is a rest that God has promised, just as there is a a promised land that he has promised to deliver to his people, but it's not the one that we've been reading about in the book of Joshua and could never have been that one. Those were types They were shadows. They were foreshadowing of realities yet to come. That there would be a land. There would be a rest. But it was the rest that God has for his people after Christ comes again. Hebrews goes on and says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What do these things mean for us? What do the lessons of the conquest mean for us? We've been trying to look at the conquest from the lens of God's people today, how this ancient story can teach us things about the life that we live. And it does teach. It teaches us that no matter how faithful you are, some part of your sin remains unconquered. It's not just Israel that is only partially conquered. In the life of believers, there's, there's that already not yet structure that we talk about when we talk about the kingdom of Christ. So Christ in his first coming established his kingdom. It is already here. It is already happening. It's already reigning. But the fullness of that kingdom has not yet appeared. The promises attached to that kingdom, they are not yet here. That's the not yet. We look forward to their fulfillment when Christ comes again. If you can understand that in a a cosmic sense, it helps you make sense of your own life as a believer. Because in your own life, you see a little bit of already and not yet. Paul acknowledges this in talking to believers. He talks to believers as those who are saved But he also talks to us in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, as those who are being saved. So our salvation is a a finished work in one sense and an ongoing project in another. And that's true cosmically in the sense that Christ has not yet fulfilled everything, has not brought in the fullness of his kingdom, but it's also true personally as well, that you are not yet what you shall be. And the evidence is with you every day of your life. In the history of the church, there have been Christians who, reflecting on Scripture, have not seen that that two-part reality and have imagined that, that to be a Christian, to be a good Christian, is to be a Christian who is free from sin. And so we've told ourselves that the especially good Christians are free from sin, that it's possible for us, if we're obedient enough, to have sinless perfection. Occasionally we singled those individuals out who seemed to us to be sinless and said, they're the saints. But the way Scripture speaks of the saints is not quite so narrow. Scripture's idea of the saints is much broader than that and honestly not as sanctified. Because the saints of scripture are sinners still. There is no sinless perfection in this life. 
But there's also no need after this life for you to somehow go somewhere to like do your time and purge your remaining sin so that you can be good enough to enter in. Because Christ does the work. Christ saves us. Christ accomplishes all the work for sin. But in the same way that his kingdom is established and yet waits to be fulfilled, our salvation is established in Christ and yet working itself out over time and will only be complete in the life to come. Why should we even fight our sin if you can't possibly win? I mean, it seems like there's no point. We're sinners by nature. We should just go on sinning. There's, there's forgiveness for all sin. Why not sin so that grace may abound? Seems like there's a logic to that, but it misunderstands the reason why we fight against sin. This isn't a battle that you fight because you think you can win. This is a battle you fight because Christ has already won. Because your eyes are fixed on him. The fight isn't over, in other words. The struggle against sin is constant in the life of the believer. But even though the fight isn't over, it's time to rejoice right now. Paul says to rejoice in the Lord always in Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. What he doesn't say is rejoice in the Lord when it's all done. Rejoice in the Lord in the time to come. Rejoice in the Lord when it's easy because everyone will clearly see that we should rejoice in the Lord. He says rejoice in the Lord always, including now, including in your current circumstances. In the same way that Joshua divides up the land as an inheritance, after God says there's still land to be conquered, in this life where there remains so much to be conquered, we're still meant to rejoice. We're still meant to enjoy the blessings of what we've been given in Christ. We enjoy the blessings of the victory before the final victory has even been accomplished, consummated. We enjoy those blessings now and rejoice. This idea of joy in spite of the not-yetness of all of those promises is probably the hardest part of the Christian calling. It seems like the fighting would be the hardest part, but I don't think the fighting is. I think the joy is the hardest part. Because fighting against evil, fighting against injustice, there's something that makes sense about that, and we should fight against those things. But rejoicing in the midst of evil, rejoicing in the midst of injustice doesn't seem right somehow. It doesn't seem right. There's something in us that makes it easier to come to the battle than it does to come to the battle singing psalms and rejoicing. Joy is is the the difficult thing. Now, how do we live in the joy now? How do we rejoice always? What has to do with this idea of rest? There's the rest to come, this promised rest to come, but it's actually built into The now, what we already experience, we get tastes, we get glimpses of this rest that has been promised. The author of Hebrews alludes to the fact that the idea of rest comes from creation. Like God gives us the example. I don't think the teaching of Genesis is that God created all things and that was such a tiring action 
that he needed to take a break and, and just pause and catch his breath. He rests for us. He rests for our sake to show us that there's a rest to come. A rest that is built into our lives, built into our calendar, so to speak. On the seventh day, he rested. This Sabbath that is enshrined in the Ten Commandments that we observe as the Lord's Day, now as Christians. That is a rest that we've been given, a holy Sabbath that we've been given. Just before the service, I was talking to a few of you about uh, the Puritan view of what you've got to do to observe the Sabbath that's reflected in our Westminster standards. And if you were to read, especially the larger catechism and what your duties and obligations are on the Sabbath, uh, you would realize you've never kept the Sabbath and perhaps no human being ever has. Uh, the, The bar is set really high. And as a result of that, we see those things and we tend to react and say, well, that sounds a little strict to me. It seems a little legalistic to me. And and I'll confess that's often the way I feel when I look at those strictures. But then I look at my own life and I look at the times that we live in. And I really don't think our problem is that we might be too strict in observing the Sabbath that maybe we're just too strict when it comes to taking this rest that we've been commanded to take. If anything, the opposite. So that I always feel a little justified in in, in pushing us towards a greater appreciation for the tradition of the church. Because I think there is a need that human beings have for rest. There's a need that we have to pause from our everyday concerns and reflect on our eternal concerns. And that's what the Sabbath is for. So if we want to rejoice in spite of the not yetness of things, one way to do that is not to neglect the rest that we've been given by God. But of course, we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves and imagine that the rest is here now. Because it's not. Because we still have to struggle. I mean, the structure of the week is a good example. A day of rest and then six days of work, of struggle. The idea isn't that uh, once I find my peace, then I'm at peace with the world because not everybody's at peace. As we saw the very beginning of this chronicle of the conquest, there's no rest until everybody rests. We continue to struggle in this life. But even in the midst of that struggle, We must pause to rest and reflect on what it's all for. What that means, really, is just this. When the author of Hebrews says, strive to enter that rest, strive to enter that rest, he's saying we should live in the already as if the not yet is certain to come. As if the promises that have been made will be real, will come to pass, just live as if you think that is true. In other words, live faithfully. Live obediently. Believe in the Christ who is to come. Believe in the judgment that has been promised and live accordingly, which means living without fear. Don't live as if the world has the power to crush you. Don't draw your lines and make your decisions as if you have something to be terrified of. The world turns on you. Live without fear. If you live with Christ, I mentioned the day of reckoning, a day of judgment to come. Don't live 
as if on that day of judgment you have no answer to give. Because if you are in Christ, you have an answer and do not need to fear. That, I think, is the ultimate lesson of the conquest. It's interesting when you look at the words of the author of Hebrews when he says, strive to enter that rest, let us strive to enter that rest, because those words could sound encouraging to you, like, like a coach telling you right before the big game, strive to enter that rest, strive to, to cross the finish line. But they could also be a little daunting. And to be honest with you, I think the daunting reading is the right one if you see the way that the author of Hebrews continues. He starts talking about scripture and gives this passage that when we look at it as a proof text seems to be about the, the authority and the power of scripture, which it is. But in this context, it's specifically about the power and authority of scripture in a particular way. So this is uh, Hebrews 4, starting in verse 12. After telling us to strive to enter, he says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Scripture is. A sword that can pierce the heart. A sword that can flay you open and reveal your inner workings. Does that sound encouraging? I think it sounds daunting. It sounds threatening. Because here, Scripture's power to scour us, to reveal what we really are, reveals Scripture as a standard of judgment. Scripture lays us bare. We're naked before that judgment. Naked before it. The day of judgment will expose our nakedness. How can we enter into that rest with this sword standing between us and that rest? It's almost as if if you picture the scene when Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden They can't go back in. It's not because they don't know the way. It's because there's now a guard posted, an angel with a flaming sword who will not let them back in. Strive to enter that rest, the author of Hebrews tells you. And then he says there's a flaming sword, this two-edged sword of scripture, which will leave you naked and exposed on the day of judgment. It's like he's saying, strive to get in, see if you can get past the sword. It's terrifying when you meditate on this. It's terrifying. But if scripture is the sword of judgment, if it is the standard against which we are compared, then Christ is the shield against judgment. He is the shield between us and the sword. He is the covering that when our nakedness is exposed, our sinfulness is revealed, the blood of Christ acts as a covering, shielding us from the consequences of that truth, which the author of Hebrews knows, because he lays that sword between us and our rest. And then, in the very next breath, he speaks to us of Christ. After speaking about the sharpness of Scripture 
as a sword. He turns and he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. The sharpness of the blade isn't meant to frighten us because we have Jesus as our shield because we have a great high priest, because we have a conqueror who is powerful enough to accomplish all that must be done, we have hope. Apart from him, we have no hope of entering that rest, but with him, we will enter the rest that has been promised. The conquest that Joshua could not complete is completed by Jesus The kingdom that the house of David could not hold on to is established forever by the son of David, Jesus Christ. And the rest that we now experience only in tastes and in glimpses because of Jesus will be ours for eternity. So that the ultimate lesson of the quest must be this. God wins the victory for us. And now we must live as victors. We must live as victors are meant to live. We must rest in Christ. We must rejoice in Christ. And our lives must be shaped to the prayer, Thy kingdom come. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.